<clears throat> Welcome back. Today is episode 11 of Reading Zhuangzi, and uh, we're going to start in on chapter 4, which is called In the World of Men, Burton Watson translation. Today is Wednesday, 5-5, uh, May 5, here in Taiwan. Already we're in May. <laughs> the year, I think, is going very quickly. It seems uh, the days shall be shortened uh, for the sake of the elect or those who can perceive the shortening of the days and what feels to be um, accelerated um, experiencing <clears throat> or passage of time, so-called. So this chapter, number four in the world of men, which is the Burton Watson's translation of the title of the chapter, um, is very much a very, very rich guidance in dealing with people, uh, service, uh, guidance, uh, advice for the helpers, advice in uh, helping people, working with people, particularly, obviously, to the ruler. That's how it's framed. <clears throat> the stylistic device of Chongzi, of having historical figures uh, speak Taoist philosophy, when they didn't really, really, like Confucius, is employed well, muchly here. So you'll see Confucius and the disciple, uh, the main beloved disciple of Confucius being a, a man named Yan Hui, uh, having a dialogue, Confucius teaching him uh, with Taoist philosophy, <laughs> which was not the case realistically for Confucius, but there is a lot of overlap between Confucian teaching and Taoism, uh, essentially, in terms of benevolence, like Zhen, like Zhen Ren, Zhen uh, also means is commonly translated as benevolence, um, as uh, as well as uh, <clears throat> the the true man, Zhen Ren, real man, authentic man, person, and uh, upside down, concealed eye or hidden, seeing the hidden person, the spiritual adept, as well as a seeker, uh, you know. The, perf the Jenren is really the perfected seeker, but um, we can say perfecting or self-developing seeker. And so there are a lot of dialogues in this chapter uh, with historical personages as examples, as well as mouthpieces for Taoist philosophy, Chongzi's philosophy. And while the common ground um, is benevolence, uh, uh, Confucius was a good person, a fine man. Uh, his approach was a bit different than the Taoist. And then over time, uh, in the few centuries since Confucius to the writing of the Zhongzi, um, people commonly, as, as everywhere, um, harden in their understanding or become dogmatic and rigid in limited understanding of the original teaching and teacher's um, message. It happens all the time. Uh, with all philosophies and religions uh, generally on planet Earth. It's like the telephone game, you know? <laughs> People whispering to the person next to them uh, the message that started in a certain way. By the end of the telephone game line, uh, the message is kind, usually garbled. How in the world did that happen? <laughs> well, that's um, the basis of uh, poor translations and um, losing the original message, uh, lost in translation lost in transmission, 
lost over the centuries, um, lost by communication, by faulty communication. Faulty in that people don't listen carefully, actually, and then don't know they're not listening carefully, and then don't know that they're, uh, they have strayed from the original message that they received, <laughs> that it was being transmitted. And so it's not only lost in translation, it's lost over time, it's lost by communication. The uh, leakage, you know, a memory leak in uh, human cons- uh, communication. It's a really big problem. And so Confucius did talk about the rectification of words. Um, make sure you know what the words mean. Uh, because people uh, are massively presumptuous, assuming uh, they know or they heard without checking to make sure, double, double check. Yes, indeed, I have heard the words you said, and now here's my interpretation, which is not necessarily perfect or never perfect, but uh, let's check it to make sure. <laughs> that kind of thing commonly doesn't happen. So in any case, let's jump in. What I'd like to do, it's, it's a somewhat long chapter. <clears throat> uh, I'll read the whole things through. Now, before that even, note 11 or 12 is just a general comment that Burton Watson is making about a particular passage, but it applies to the whole chapter. And he said, throughout this passage, which could be applied somewhat to the whole chapter, Confucius, and then some others, while appearing to give advice on how to carry out a diplomatic mission or how to um, deal with a ruler or how to be in the world of men, is in fact enunciating Johnson's code for successful behavior in general. So successful behavior in general uh, actually uh, means uh, how to apply Taoist principles in daily life. how to uh, live in the world of men from the perspective of a Taoist genren, from um, the Taoist understanding of what works, what's effective, to preserve yourself and get your message across or be skillful in service, like Buddhist upaya, skillful means. So I'll read the whole chapter, start on 88, read it through, then come back to the start and do a little commentary. This will take a few weeks to get through the chapter. Uh, It's quite rich and very interesting, many stories, so just listen along and um, we'll pick up some understanding along the way and then go back and um, get into more detail. So, chapter 4, Zhangzi, In the World of Men, translated by Burton Watson, begins. Yan Hui went to see Confucius and asked permission to take a trip. Where are you going? I'm going to Wei. which was a kingdom um, not too far away. What will you do there? Confucius asked Yan Wei. And Yan Wei replies, I've heard that the ruler of Wei is very young. He acts in an independent manner, thinks little of how he rules his state, and fails to see his faults. It's nothing to him to lead his people into peril, and his dead are reckoned by swampfuls like so much grass. His people have nowhere to turn. I've heard you say, Master, quote, leave the state that's well-ordered and go to the state in chaos. At the doctor's gate are many sick men. I want to use these words as my standard in hopes that I can restore his state to health. 
Ah, said Confucius, you will probably go and get yourself executed. That's all. The Tao doesn't want, and again, this is one perspective. All of this is uh, a Taoist perspective that we're trying to understand, that we partially understand, that is not the only perspective on how to be in the world of men or how to live a life or how to evolve. So take what you you like or what seems strange or off, uh, make a note and we will come back to it. So, ah, said Confucius, you'll probably go and get yourself executed, that's all. The Tao doesn't want things mixed in with it. When it becomes a mixture, it becomes many ways. With many ways, there's a lot of bustle. And when there's a lot of bustle, there is trouble. Trouble that has no remedy. The perfect man, and here's the end paragraph guidance. <clears throat> the perfect man of ancient times made sure that he had it in himself before he tried to give it to others. This is a critical line. The perfect man of ancient times made sure that he had it in himself before he tried to give it to others. When you're not even sure what you've got in yourself, how do you have time to bother about what some tyrant is doing? Don't you know what it is that destroys virtue and where wisdom comes from? Virtue is destroyed by fame, and wisdom comes out of wrangling. Now, this may be true wisdom or uh, wisdom in quotation marks, meaning the presumed understanding of wisdom. So, do you know what it is... This, this paragraph is actually a challenge. Do you know what it is that destroys virtue and where wisdom comes from? Virtue is destroyed by fame, and wisdom comes out of wrangling, which is hard to understand. Fame is something meaning when you show yourself as fame or you stand on some presumed fame. Fame is something to beat people down with, or the ruler will do. And wisdom is a device for wrangling. This could be the misuse of of wisdom. Both are evil weapons. Not the sort of thing to bring you success. Though your virtue may be great and your good faith unassailable, if you do not understand men's spirits, their ways, though your fame may be wide and you do not strive with others, If you do not understand men's minds, but instead appear before a tyrant and force him to listen to sermons on benevolence and righteousness, measures and standards, this is simply using other man's bad points to parade your own excellence. You will be called a plaguer of others. He who plagues others will be plagued in turn. You will probably be plagued by this man, the tyrant to whom you, uh, he makes such, such a, a kind of uh, self-righteous approach. Quote, and he goes on, And <clears throat> suppose he is the kind who actually delights in worthy men and hates the unworthy, then why does he need you to try to make him any different? You had best keep your advice to yourself. Kings and dukes always lord it over others and fight to win the argument. You will find your eyes growing dazed, your color changing, your mouth working to invent excuses, your attitude becoming more and more humble until in your mind you end by supporting him. This is to pile fire on fire, to add water to water, and is called, quote, increasing the excessive. If you give in at the beginning, there will be no place to stop. Since your fervent advice is almost certain not to be believed, you are bound to die 
if you come into the presence of a tyrant and act that way. He goes on. <clears throat> In ancient times, jie, uh, this is these are tyrants and uh, exemplars of virtue who tried to help them in the wrong way. In ancient times, jie put Guanglongfeng to death and Zhou put Prince Bi Gang to death. Both Guanglongfeng, the, the one who was trying to, a reformer, and Prince Bi Gan, another who was trying to help, were scrupulous in their conduct, bent down to comfort and aid the common people, and used their positions as ministers to oppose their superiors. Therefore their rulers, Jie and Zhou, utilized their scrupulous conduct as a means to trap them, for they were too fond of good fame. Now that's a criticism of those reformers. In ancient times, another story, Yao attacked Kongzi and Shu Ao, and Yu attacked Yu Hu, and these states were left empty and unpeopled, their rulers cut down. These are tyrants attacking other states. It was because they employed their armies constantly and never seeked, never ceased their search for gain, these rulers that attacked. All were seekers of fame or gain. Have you alone not heard of them? Even the sages cannot cope with men who are after fame or gain, much less a person like you. And that's the uh, bankable line. Even the sages cannot cope with men who are after fame or gain, much less a person like you. So that's called <laughs> the, uh, the uh, unreachable tyrant, or those that are centered in the negative path. However, he goes on, you must have some plan in mind. Come, tell me what it is. So Yan Hui said, if I am grave and empty-hearted, and these are <laughs> somewhat stat, somewhat um, established um, Confucian modes of guidance, of giving guidance. And you can see, <laughs> 2,500 years ago or so, uh, there was a very sophisticated understanding. Some of it is um, not criticizable, though Chongzhu's sort of exaggerating the limitations and criticizing it as a vehicle to provide Taoist philosophy. Some of it is very subtle and sophisticated. Uh, what seems to be uh, Confucian guidance to the reformers to be helping in a state how to approach the tyrant or the ruler. So this is very interesting. And then, you know, somewhat exaggerated and used as a vehicle, as a punching bag, as the, uh, as, as the fall guy uh, for Zhangzi's criticism and then um, provision of philosophy. So Yan Hui said, Well, if I am grave and empty-hearted, diligent and of one mind, won't that do? Confucius answers, Goodness, how could that do? You may put on a fine outward show and seem very impressive, but you can't avoid having an uncertain look on your face, any more than an ordinary man can. And then you try to gauge this man's feelings, meaning the tyrant, and seek to influence his mind, but with him, what is called, quote, the virtue that advances a little each day, which is a Confucian principle. Virtue that advances every, a little each day, and virtue is de, tao de. Tao De Ching, Tao De De, that virtue is also power. It's also intelligent energy, actually, because real virtue is love, wisdom, green, blue, and so it accesses indigo. Mm -mm -mm. So true virtue 
is a blend of love, wisdom, green, blue, is wisdom and compassion, or loving heartedness, um, harmless wisdom, honesty, uh, kindly bent to uh, serve others or help others or help or be in truth and virtue. That that accesses intelligent energy. Mm. So. Uh, you may put on a fine outward show and seem very impressive, but you can't avoid having an uncertain look on your face any more than an ordinary man can. And then you try to gauge this man's feelings, the tyrant, and seek to influence his mind, but with him. What is called, quote, the virtue that advances a little each day would not succeed, much less a great display of virtue. He will stick fast to his position and never be converted, Though he may make outward signs of agreement, inwardly, he will not give it a thought. How could such an approach succeed? <clears throat> and Yan Wei thinks about it and replies, Well then, <clears throat> suppose I am inwardly direct. This is another mode of approach. Suppose then I am inwardly direct, outwardly compliant, and do my work through the examples of antiquity. And by being inwardly direct, I can be the companion of heaven. Being a companion of heaven, I know that the Son of Heaven and I, Son of Heaven is a term for the ruler, I know that the Son of Heaven and I are equally the sons of heaven. Then, why would I use my words to try to get men to praise me, or to try to get them not to praise me? A man like this, people call the child. This is what I mean by being a companion of heaven. Right? That sounds already pretty good, right? I'm just saying, <laughs> it sounds like he, you know, that's a better approach. Be the companion of heaven, and the ruler called the son of heaven and I would then be equally sons of heaven. Then he's not going to be dealing with praise, getting it or not getting it. Called the child, this is what he means by being companion of heaven. That seems kind of sophisticated, and he explains it further. By being outwardly compliant, I can be a companion of men. Lifting up the tablet, kneeling, bowing, crouching down, this is the etiquette of a minister. This is straight up. Chinese um, govern, you know, high governmental ritualism of 23, 2500 years ago. Everybody does it, so why shouldn't I? If I do what other people do, they can hardly criticize me. This is what I mean by being a companion of men. So, okay, he's a companion of heaven, he's a companion of men. Sounds pretty good. He goes on. By doing my work through the examples of antiquity, very common in Chinese literature or philosophy, I can be a companion of ancient times, the third type of companion. Though my words may in fact be lessons and reproaches, they belong to ancient times and not to me. I didn't say it. He said it. But I just said that he said it. In this way, though I may be blunt, I cannot be blamed. This is what I mean by being a companion of antiquity. If I go about in this way, will it do? And Confucius (laughs) replies, so... That looks to me like a pretty sophisticated, you know, uh, understanding and application or plan to apply the principles of service in being a companion of heaven, companion of men, and companion of antiquity. Pretty, pretty deep, I think. You know, what were they doing in uh, in the Saxony and uh, the Germanic tribes <laughs> two thousand years ago? Huh? They were eating each other or uh, beating each other. This is what the what was going on in China uh, 2,300 years ago. <clears throat> Already a development of the philosophy of service. <laughs> yeah. 
pretty sophisticated intellectually, I'd say. But now, here, Confucius said, in reply, Goodness, how could that do? You have too many policies and plans, and you haven't seen what is needed. You'll probably get off without incurring any blame, yes, but that will be as far as it goes. How do you think you can actually convert him? You're still making the mind your teacher. Mm -hmm. Meaning, following your intellectual theory or your theoretical bases uh, in a rigid way, not um, not sensitive enough to um, dynamics in real in real time. Anyway, he goes on. <clears throat> so you're making the mind your teacher. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> that's his. Uh, that'll be explained a little bit more later. So Yanwei replies and says, "I have nothing more to offer. May I ask you the proper way?" And Confucius replies, you must fast. I will tell you what that means. Do you think it is easy to do anything while you have a mind? If you do, that this could also be monastic function, mind or lower mind, or a personalistic, um, rigid, lower intellect, mind, body, identified mind. Do you think it's easy to do anything while you have a mind? If you do... Bright heaven will not sanction you. Ming Tian, bright heaven. Yan Hui said, My family is poor. I haven't drunk wine or eaten any strong foods for several months. So can I be considered as having fasted? Master Gongzi. And Master Gongzi replies, That's the fasting one does before a sacrifice, not the fasting of the mind. Yan Yan Hui replies, May I ask... What is the fasting of the mind? Confucius said, Make your will one. Don't listen with your ears. Listen with your mind. No, don't listen with your mind, but listen with your spirit. Listening stops with the ears. The mind stops with recognition. But spirit is empty and waits for all things. And this is another bankable line. The Tao gathers in emptiness alone. Emptiness is the fasting of the mind. Sunya, so sunya, sunyata, emptiness, is the fasting of the mind. (laughs) The mind uh, of samadhi, of equanimity, that has some tasting of sunya, emptiness, uh, is here identified as the fasting of the mind. The Tao gathers in emptiness alone. And there'll be another line later in this chapter that expands on that. The way the Tao gathers in emptiness alone, emptiness is the fasting of the mind. Yan Hui said in reply, Before I heard this, I was certain that I was Hui. <laughs> Meaning I'm certain I'm Yan Hui. But now that I've heard it, there is no more Hui. Can this be called emptiness? It's a it's depersonalization, <laughs> dissociation. Or is it transpersonal non-duality? Confucius says, that's all there is to it. Now, I'll tell you, Confucius said, you may go and play in his birdcage, but never be moved by fame, meaning your own fame and his fame. If he listens, then sing. If not, keep still. Have no gate, no opening. But make oneness your house and live with what cannot be avoided, then you will be close to success. 
And he goes on. <clears throat> it is easy to keep from walking, meaning just sit down and don't walk. It's easy to keep from walking. The hard thing is to walk without touching the ground. It's easy to cheat when you work for men, but hard to cheat when you work for heaven. Indeed. <laughs> Indeed, that's true. You have heard of flying with wings, but you've never heard of flying without wings. You've heard of the knowledge that knows, but you have never heard of the knowledge that does not know. Look into that closed room, the empty chamber where brightness is born. Fortune and blessing gather where there is stillness. That's the other bankable line. Fortune and blessing gather where there is stillness. Mm-hmm. Merit, good karma, gathers in uh, equanimity. Mm-hmm. But if you do not keep still, he goes on, this is what is called sitting but racing around, like sitting body, sitting in meditation, mind racing around. Let your ears and eyes communicate with what is inside and put mind and knowledge on the outside. Very deep. <laughs> then even gods and spirits will come to dwell, not to speak of men. This is the changing of the 10,000 things, the bond of Yu and Shun. These are mythical founders of civilization. The constant practice of Fu Shi and Ji Chu. How much more should it be a rule for lesser men, like you or me? Let your so again he said the the the, the money shot is let your eyes let your ears and eyes communicate with what is inside and put mind and knowledge on the outside. Then even gods and spirits will come to dwell, not to speak of men. This is the changing of the ten thousand things, the bond of Yu and Shun, the constant practice of Fu Shi and Ji Chu. How much more should it be a rule for lesser men? Going on, another story. Zhi Gao, Duke of Shi, who was being sent on a mission to Qi, consulted Confucius. And so Zhi Gao says, The king is sending me on an important mission. Qi will probably treat me, meaning he's on a mission to Qi, consulting Confucius before he goes. Uh, so Ji Gao says to Confucius about the mission, gaining guidance. The king is sending me on a very important mission. Qi, that state, will probably treat me with great honor, but will be in no hurry to do anything more. This is uh, <laughs> what Lavrov has studied long, long ago. Even a commoner cannot be forced to act, much less one of the feudal lords. I'm very worried about it. You once said to me, quote, in all affairs, whether large or small, there are few men who reach a happy conclusion except through the way. This is a classic Taoist line. Very few are happy outside the Tao. So, you once said to me, whether Confucius said it, or uh, Lao Tzu or Zhang Tzu said it, that's not clear to me. In all affairs, whether large or small, there are few men who reach a happy conclusion except through the Tao. If you do not succeed, you're bound to suffer from the judgment of men. If you do succeed, you're bound to suffer from the yin and yang, meaning your body will be disrupted and your health um, damaged. To suffer no harm, whether or not you succeed, only the man who has the virtue can do that, to suffer no harm, whether or not you succeed. And so a core Taoist principle is suffer no harm, 
right? Sounds good to me. Uh, service without um, self, uh, self-harm. self <laughs> Okay, that sounds kind of reasonable. To suffer no harm, whether or not you succeed, only the man who has the virtue can do that. I'm a man who eats plain food that's simply cooked so that no one ever complains of the heat in my kitchens. This is a... We'll come back to this. This was a line that was hard for all the translators. Yet, this morning I received my orders from the king, and by evening I'm gulping ice water, meaning he's uh, in a fever. Do you suppose I've developed some kind of internal fever? I've not even gone to Qi to see what the situation is like, and already I'm suffering from the yin and yang, meaning the primary elemental forces of the body are disturbed for him now. And if I do not succeed... I'm bound to suffer from the judgment of men. I will have both worries, the worries of succeeding and not succeeding. As a minister, I'm not capable of carrying out this mission. But perhaps you have some advice you can give me? Confucius said, In the world, there are two great decrees. One is fate, and the other is duty. Uh, Also called destiny, by the way. So there's destiny and there's duty, there's obligation. So in some sense, this is um, heaven and man. By heaven, we have fate or destiny or um, the, the rightful path of the incarnation and its obligations. It's dharma, dharma and, and, and danda. The other is duty, which is a particularly more interpersonal, social of men, of our position in, in society but they obviously intertwine. So, Confucius said, in the world there are two great decrees, meaning uh, commands from on high. One is fate, destiny. The other is duty, obligation. That a son should love his parents is fate. You cannot erase this from his heart. That a subject should serve, serve his ruler is duty. There is no place he can go and be without his ruler, no place he can escape to between heaven and earth. These are called the great decrees. Right? So fate and duty, one is given by heaven, one is given by heaven, one is given by man, but they're both sort of intrinsic to uh, personal dharma or danda or obligation, incarnational obligation. These are called the great decrees. Therefore, to serve your parents and to be content to follow them anywhere... This is the perfection of filial piety. To serve your ruler and be content to do anything for him, this is the peak of loyalty. And to serve your own mind so that sadness or joy does not sway or move it, to understand what you can do nothing about and be content with it as with fate, this is the perfection of virtue. Duh. As a subject and a son, you are bound to find things you cannot avoid. And that's the point, is uh, this accepting um, what you can't uh, avoid, uh, that same line, to serve your own mind so that sadness or joy does not sway or move it, which really means doesn't excessively or, or incessantly sway or move it, because we, you know, we're all swayable. The question is, do we get stuck in swaying or not? So, to serve your own mind so that sadness or joy does not sway or move it, to understand what you can do nothing about and to be content with it as fate. This is the perfection of virtue. As a subject and a son, you are bound to find things that you cannot avoid. If you act in accordance with the state of affairs 
and forget about yourself, then what leisure will you have to love life and hate death? This is a common phrase of criticism. Uh, worldly people overly loving life, loving life and hating death. So if you act in accordance with the state of affairs and forget about yourself, then what leisure, meaning where will you be un, unengaged enough to fall into the mistakes of loving life and hating death? Act in this way and you'll be all right, meaning accept what you can't avoid. And he goes on, I want to tell you something else I've learned. In all human relations, this is straight up Trongsa talking. <laughs> I want to tell you something else I have learned. In all human relations, if the two parties are living close to each other, they may form a bond through personal trust. But if they're far apart, they must use words to communicate their loyalty, and words must be transmitted by someone, at least in the old days, to transmit words that are either pleasing to both parties or infuriating to both parties is one of the most difficult things in the world. So this is at some level guidance for the reformer communicating ideas to the king or the tyrant or the ruler um, and the difficulty in uh, the intrinsic difficulties in communication. Similar to last chapter, previous chapter, the difficulties in knowledge of right and wrong and true and false. So, to transmit words that are either pleasing to both parties or infuriating to both parties is one of the most difficult things in the world. When both parties are pleased, there must be some exaggeration of the good points. And when both parties are angered, there must be some exaggeration of the bad points. Anything that smacks of exaggeration is irresponsible. Where there is irresponsibility, no one will trust what is said. And when that happens, the man who is transmitting the words will be in danger. Therefore, the aphorism, the saying, says, quote, Transmit the established facts. Do not transmit words of exaggeration. If you do that, you'll probably come out all right. So he's saying, don't exaggerate <laughs> in any way, otherwise you're uh, in jeopardy, because somebody is bound to be upset um, <laughs> in that way. He goes on. When men get together to pit their strength in games of skill, they start off in a light and friendly mood, but usually end up in a dark and angry one. And if they go on too long, they start resorting to various underhanded tricks. When men meet at some ceremony to drink, they start off in an orderly manner, but usually end up in disorder. And if they go on too long, they start indulging in various irregular amusements or perversions. It is the same with all things. What starts out being sincere usually ends up being deceitful. What was simple in the beginning acquires monstrous proportions in the end. Words are like wind and waves. Actions are a matter of gain and loss. Wind and waves are easily moved, like words. Questions of gain and loss easily lead to danger, like action. So wind and waves, like words, uh, easily moved. Actions being associated with gain and loss, uh, questions of gain and loss, and one's activity easily leads to danger. He goes on, Hence, anger arises from no other cause than clever words and one-sided speeches. So don't be a dogmatic reformer. When animals face death, they do not care what cries they make. 
their breath comes in gasps, and a wild fierceness is born in their hearts. Men, too, if you press them too hard, are bound to answer you with ill-natured hearts, though they do not know why they do so. If they themselves do not understand why they behave like this, then who knows where it will end? Therefore, the aphorism says, quote, Do not deviate from your orders. Do not press for completion. To go beyond the limit is excess. To deviate from orders or press for completion is a dangerous thing. This is basically like training diplomats. A good completion takes a long time. A bad completion cannot be changed later. I wonder if they've read this in Moscow. Do not deviate from your orders. Do not press for completion. To go beyond the limit is excess. To deviate from orders or press for completion is a dangerous thing. A good completion takes a long time. A bad completion cannot be changed later. Can you afford to be careless? And he goes on. Just go along with things and let your mind move freely. Resign yourself to what cannot be avoided and nourish what is within you. This is best. What more do you have to do to fulfill your mission? Nothing is as good as following orders, obeying fate, um, meaning being in harmony with your dharma. That's how difficult it is. <clears throat> and the note on that... Uh, let me just see something. Uh, this, this phrase... Uh, Nothing is as good as uh, following orders. <laughs> uh, think people think what you should follow orders. Um, again, that's why we have to be kind of careful here. Uh, he, uh, Bryn Watson says that this phrase "ming" can be interpreted either as following orders or obeying fate, uh, <clears throat> and this also is the fate to um, not damage your life, the destiny or the order, the command. The, 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 first of all, <coughs> that there is some implicit command within, um, uh, within the, 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 in the nature, intrinsic to the nature of fate and destiny. That, that fate and destiny is not just a path or a way of incarnational progression, progressing through the incarnation. There's implicit obligation and command within it. The, the, there's a... Um, so dharma, or danda, as obligation, responsibility, is, um, is such by it manifesting a higher command. It is, uh, it's not just a path that's in front of us or a, a way of, of life or... Um, some kind of line of least resistance or some kind of fated um, sequence or fated um, uh, route or road or path ahead through the life. There's implicitly some command to be fulfilled uh, and therefore duty and obligation to be fulfilled. Um, to have a path is to follow the path. <laughs> to have a path that ought to be followed is uh, such because there's an implicit command and obligation to do so in the very establishing of that destiny, fate, path, way of a life. 
And so that's akin to obeying fate. And it doesn't necessarily mean <clears throat> uh, obeying orders from the king. It actually means obeying the life, obeying the way of fulfillment of life purpose in accord with higher self. And um, that's not the same as following orders of a tyrant. Um, in some cases, like Yeshua didn't obey the order of a tyrant um, and let himself be taken to the, cru- to the crucifix, to the crucifixion. Um, so the story goes. Uh, was he not following his Tao? Was he, well, Christian will say he was in accord with God's will, the Father's will to do such. Uh, is that <clears throat> some kind of um, regression from the way of balanced love, wisdom, and embracing the way of martyrdom, which is a distortion, as Ra seemed to imply? Well, yes and no. <laughs> for an ordinary way of life, for an ordinary folk, um, going to martyrdom is a rejection of wisdom. Commonly, commonly. Again, it depends. But commonly, embracing early death martyrdom would be considered a rejection of wisdom and an imbalance of love over wisdom. Uh, on the other hand, Yeshua had a fate as Yeshua, <laughs> which was to bring what he brought. Not necessarily to found a religion, but to bring what he brought. To bring the good word to the lost sheep let's say, to the Martian emigres, <laughs> to the Martian uh, community in the zone. Uh, that he went to the crucifixion seems to me to be part of his um, fate and destiny for the incarnation that he had. He also happened to harvest a fit density, so it wasn't too shabby. Lots of problems came from the establishment of the church, no doubt. But... Um, going against the authority of the day and suffering uh, martyrdom while can be called deficient wisdom and excessive love or what commonly is for most folks in his case seemed to me to be uh, obeying his fate and uh, living in accord with his dharma and uh, following the higher orders that were associated with a pre-programmed catalyst or his life plan, life purpose. And so mm, Confucius is talking about how it's easy or not easy um, to follow fate. Now, let me go on. So, in the world there are two great decrees. One is fate, the other is duty. And uh, then he says, the guidance, <clears throat> middle page 97, and this chapter ends at 103, just go along with things, which is not the same as follow your fate or destiny or be true to your destiny or uh, heavenly decree. So there's a mixed up, dif- mixed up mix of teaching here. Just go along with things and let your mind move freely. So this is sort of freedom and obligation simultaneously and uh, centered in the essential rather than in the temporal. Just go along with things and let your mind move freely. Resign yourself to what cannot be avoided and nourish what is within you. This is best. What more do you have to do than to fulfill your mission? 
Nothing is as good as following orders, obeying fate, whatever that can be understood as. That's how difficult it is, which is sort of a little ironic and not quite straightforward, simple there. Then the next story. Yan He, who had been appointed, appointed tutor to the crown prince, son Duke Ling of Wei, went to consult Zhu Bo Yu. A lot of names. <clears throat> and he said, uh, went to consult Zhu Bo Yu. Um, and he's saying, Here is this man who by nature is lacking in virtue. If I let him go on with his unruliness, I will endanger the state. And so he's appointed tutor to the crown prince, who's a troublemaker. Duke Ling of Wei was a difficult fellow, I guess. But he's a crown prince, so he's a young boy, so you can't really criticize him without him commanding wildly to have your head chopped off or something. So Yan Hui, appointed tutor to the crown prince, Duke Ling, went to consult this Zhu Bu Yu, who becomes the stand-in for Taoist philosophy. And in commenting about Duke Ling, the young boy, crown prince, saying that uh, he's a difficult one to deal with. Here is this man who by nature is lacking in virtue. If I let him go on with his unruliness, I will endanger the state. If I try to impose some rule on him, I will endanger myself. He knows enough to recognize the faults of others, but he doesn't know his own faults. What can I do with a man like this? And... Um, Zhu Bo Yu replies and says a very good question. Be careful, be on your guard, and make sure that you yourself are in the right. In your actions, it's best to follow along with him, and in your mind, it's best to harmonize with him. However, these two courses involve certain dangers. Though you follow along, you don't want to be pulled into his doings, and though you harmonize, you don't want to be drawn out too far. If, in your actions, you follow along to the extent of being pulled in with him, then you will be overthrown, destroyed, wiped out, and brought to your knees. If, in your mind, you harmonize to the extent of being drawn out, <clears throat> meaning losing your center, in mind, of mind, of, of stillness, of clarity. If, in your mind, you harmonize to the extent of being drawn out, then you will be talked about, named, blamed, and condemned. If he wants to be a child, be a child with him. If he wants to follow erratic ways, follow erratic ways with him. If he wants to be reckless, be reckless with him. Understand him thoroughly and lead him to a point where he is without fault. <clears throat> Easier said than done, obviously. <laughs> but the key, or to me a key, is understand him thoroughly. You want to help somebody... Understand them deeply. Shut your mouth and understand them deeply first. Why not? <laughs> how can you? How can we help when we don't really deeply understand the one we're trying to help? Mm. Of course we can't. So, but people l leap into action um, before we're ready. We commonly do. Uh, so, going on, he said, Don't you know about the praying mantis that waved its arms angrily in front of an approaching carriage unaware that it was incapable of stopping it? Such was the high opinion it had of its talents. Be careful. <clears throat> Be on your guard. If you offend him by parading your store of talents, you will be in danger. 
This is like that saying, using others' faults to parade your excellence, um, which actually will get you uh, into trouble. He goes on, Don't you know how the tiger trainer goes about it? He doesn't dare give the tiger any living thing to eat, for fear it will learn the taste of fury by killing it. He doesn't dare give it any whole thing to eat, for fear it will learn the taste of fury by tearing it apart. He gauges the state of the tiger's appetite and thoroughly understands its fierce disposition. Tigers are a different breed from men, and yet you can train them to be gentle with their keepers by following along with them. The men who get killed are the ones who go against them. The horse lover uses a fine box to catch the dung and a giant clamshell to catch the stale. I think that means piss. But if a mosquito or a fly lights on the horse and he slaps it at the wrong time, then the horse will break the bit, hurt its head, and bang its chest. The horse lover thinks or tries to think of everything, but his affection leads him into error. Can you afford to be careless? <clears throat> Don't be careless. And the one of the last stories, or the next story, page 100, Carpenter Shi went to Chi. And when he got to Crooked Shaft, Burton Watson does a lot of <clears throat> uh, pronoun namings of places and people and things with capitalized uh, first, car- first letters. So it's a place called Crooked Shaft. <laughs> Carpenter She went to Chi, <clears throat> and when he got to the place called Crooked Shaft, he saw a serrate oak standing by the village shrine. It was broad enough to shelter several thousand oxen and measured a hundred spans about, towering above the hills. The lowest branches were eighty feet from the ground, and a dozen of them or so could have been made into boats. There were so many sightseers that the place looked like a fair, but the carpenter didn't even glance around and went on his way without stopping. His apprentice stood staring for a long time and then ran after Carpenter She. <clears throat> who's the Taoist sage in this case, and said to Carpenter Shi, Since I first took up the axe and followed you, Master, I have never seen timber as beautiful as this. But you don't even bother to look and go right on without stopping. Why is that? <clears throat> Carpenter Shi replies, says, Forget it. Say no more. It's a worthless tree. Make boats out of it and they'd sink. Make coffins and they'd rot in no time. Make vessels and they'd break at once. Use it for doors and it would sweat sap like pine. Use it for posts and the worms would eat them up. It's not a timber tree. There's nothing it can be used for. That's how it got to be that old. So he's saying it's useless and that's how it got to be so old. So don't use it. Uh, but actually he uh, has a teaching coming to him now. After Carpenter She had returned home, the oak tree appeared to him in a dream and said, quote, What are you comparing me with? Are you comparing me with those useful trees? The cherry apple, the pear, the orange, the citron, the rest of those fructiferous, fructiferous trees and shrubs? As soon as their fruit is ripe, They're torn apart and subjected to abuse. 
<clears throat> their big limbs are broken off. Their little limbs are yanked around. Your, their utility makes life miserable for them. And so they don't get to finish out the years heaven gave them, but are cut off in mid-journey. They bring it on themselves, this pulling and tearing of the common mob. And it's the same way with all other things. As for me, this tree saying, as for me, I've been trying a long time to be of no use. And though I almost died, I finally got it. This is of great use to me, to be of no use. If I had been of some use, would I ever have grown this large? Moreover, <clears throat> you and I are both of us things. What's the point of this, things condemning things? You, a worthless man about to die? How do you know I'm a worthless tree? <laughs> when Carpenter Shi woke up, he reported his dream. His apprentice said, If it's so intent in, on being of no use, what's it doing there at the village shrine? The young carpenter asks innocently, If it's of no intent, if it's so intent on being of no use, what's it doing there at the village shrine? And Carpenter Shear says, Shh, say no more. It's only resting there. If we carp and criticize, it will merely conclude that we don't understand it. If it weren't at the shrine, do you suppose it would be cut down? It protects itself in a different way from ordinary people. If you try to judge it by conventional standards, you'll be way off. <clears throat> so, indeed, the Jenren, the real Jenren, whoever he is, uh, can't be fully understood or judged by common standards. However, there are some universal standards <laughs> called harmlessness that need to be applied. And so, that's another matter. Going on, yeah, we may just, I may just read this chapter and leave it at that next week's start commentary. Page 101, close to the end of the chapter. G, next story. Zhi <clears throat> uh, Qi of Nanbo was wandering around the Hill of Shang, um, associated with the ancestors. The Hill of Shang, when he saw a huge tree there, different from all the rest. And the same story. A thousand teams of horses could have taken shelter under it, and its shade would have covered them all. Zhi Qi said, What tree is this? It must certainly have some extraordinary usefulness. But, looking up, he saw that the smaller limbs were gnarled and twisted, unfit for beams or rafters, and looking down, he saw that the trunk was pitted and rotten and could not be used for coffins. He licked one of the leaves, <clears throat> and it blistered his mouth and made it sore. He sniffed the odor, and it was enough to make a man drunk for three days. He said, It turns out to be a completely unusable tree, said Ji Chi, or Ji Chi, and so it's been able to grow this big, because it's a completely unusable tree. Aha! It is this unusableness that the Chen Ren makes use of. Mm-hmm. Then he goes on, or somebody goes on. The region of Jingxi in Song is fine for growing catalpas, cypresses, and mulberries, but those that are more than one or two lengths around are cut down for people who want monkey perches. Those that are three or four spans around are cut down for the ridge poles of tall roofs, and those that are seven or eight spans are cut down for the families of nobles or rich merchants 
who want sideboards for coffins. So they never get to live out the years heaven gave them, but are cut down in mid-journey by axes. This is the danger of being usable. In the Jia sacrifice, oxen with white foreheads, pigs with turned-up snouts, and men with piles cannot be offered to the river. This is <laughs> old sacrifice of <clears throat> uh, animal and humans to the river god by drowning them or killing them or something. Mm-hmm. So, uh, in the Jia sacrifice, oxen with white foreheads, pigs with turned-up snouts, and men with piles cannot be offered to the river. This is something all the shamans know, and hence they consider them inauspicious creatures. But the holy man, or Jinren, for the same reason, considers them highly auspicious. Next story. <clears throat> this is a famous Taoist story. There's crippled Shu. Mr. Shu, who's crippled. There's crippled Shu. Chin stuck down in his navel, shoulders up above his head, pigtail pointing at the sky. This is very... Uh, some of the most pejorative anti-Chinese um, comic uh, um, kind of uh, tabloid journal, yellow peril journalism of the late 19th century that portrayed Chinese uh, laborers or Chinese people as the worst, you know, kind of monster, fools, uh, imbeciles, something, something, used some of this type of imagery, actually or was related to this. <clears throat> so, the paragraph goes, bottom page 102. Um, hold on. I wanna, it's a little scary. There's crippled Shu, chin stuck down in his navel, shoulders up above his head, pigtail pointed at the sky, his five organs on the top, his two thighs pressing his ribs. By sewing and washing, he gets enough to fill his mouth, by handling a winnow and sifting out the good grain, he makes enough to feed ten people. When the authorities call out the troops, he stands in the crowd waving goodbye. When they get up a big work party, they pass him over because he's a chronic invalid. And when they're doling out grain to the ailing, he gets three big measures and ten bundles of firewood. With a crippled body, he's still able to look after himself and finish out the years heaven gave him. How much better, then, if he had crippled virtue. Crippled, duh. <laughs> so there's um, the use of the useless, another way of looking um, at uh, value, another um, understanding of value, what is valuable. And the final story, page 103, when Confucius visited Chu Jiu, the madman of Chu, wandered by his gate so Confucius is visiting the state of Chu, Jie Yu, the madman, the local madman, wandered by his gate crying, quote, Phoenix, Phoenix, how has virtue failed? The future you cannot wait for, the past you cannot pursue. When the world has the Tao, this is <laughs> a line I repeat often over the decades, when the world has the Tao, the sage succeeds. When the world is without the Tao, the sage survives. In times like the present, we do well to escape penalty. Good fortune is as light as a feather, but nobody knows how to pick it up. 
Misfortune is as heavy as the earth, but nobody knows how to stay out of its way. Leave off, leave off this teaching men virtue. Dangerous, dangerous to mark off the ground and run. Fool, fool, don't spoil my walking. I walk a crooked way. Don't step on my feet. The mountain trees do themselves harm. The grease in the torch burns itself up. The cinnamon can be eaten, and so it gets cut down. The lacquer tree can be used, and so it gets hacked apart. All men know the use of the useful, but nobody knows the use of the useless. <laughs> the future you cannot wait for, the past you cannot pursue, he said. When the, where, when the world has the Tao, the sage succeeds. When the world is without the Tao, the sage survives. So, when the Tao is in the world, the spiritual seeker and um, aspirant of love, wisdom, green, blue, indigo, succeeds. The Tao is in society. They uh, value those who value um, the good and the true and the beautiful. If you value the good and the true and the beautiful, green, blue, indigo, when uh, it's a sattvic time, not Kali Yuga, when it's Satyuga, Satyuga, um, praise to Sri Yukteswar. In Sattva Yuga, Sattvic Yuga, um, the Denren is welcome and appreciated because they all love the true and the good, the good and the true and the beautiful. But in times like today, the lower portion of Kali Yuga or coming back from the bottom on up, the time of tribulation before the end, the Tao is not in the world or in society, and at best, <laughs> the seeker, the sage, the Dunren, the, um, the one who values the good and the true and the beautiful, survives. Don't expect too much more than that, actually, or at least I don't. <laughs> so the lame-ass New Ages who say things like, you know, every day in every way I get better and better, abundance and prosperity, you won't just survive, but you can prosper and have abundance. Not now. Not now. I don't think so. <clears throat> These are the end times. This is the end of the game, the end of the line. This is Thlipsis, uh, the time of tribulation. And so, don't be, uh, don't be unrealistic. That doesn't mean we should uh, accept or uh, uh, imagine that every day is misery. Of course not. But... <clears throat> The world is not in the condition of, of valuing the good and the true and the beautiful. Individual people, our best friends, those we are close to, ought to. We ought to associate with those that value the good and the true and the beautiful. What's good, what's true, what's beautiful and holy and uh, <clears throat> of love light, of course, of what's of green, blue, indigo. You should know what green, blue, indigo means. And those that value that, we do too. And that's our true heart community. But <clears throat> society is not of um, valuing that as a whole today. The leaders and their supporters and their henchmen and women are not much in the Tao today. So <clears throat> uh, with that, maybe we'll end for today. And next time, I hope you enjoyed the chapter. It's really quite a rich chapter four here. And um, next time, we will uh, start from the, the top again in the world of men. And um, 
it'll be you know hit the highlights and make some comments on um, some of the important teachings here as best I can. So I hope you're well. I hope this was useful and interesting to you. Uh, take good care of yourselves. See you next time, and good night.